As we begin our time in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings that we enjoy and worship. Lord, we pray that as you come to this time, as we come to this time of study, as we open your word to understand who we are and the, who you are and the calling that we have to profess faith in you, Lord, I pray that you would work through me to speak the truth that you would have me to and that you would open the eyes and ears of these, your people, that they might hear and see and believe. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be turning a lot. So I'll just go ahead and warn you, we're, we don't have one particular passage that we're going to focus on, but we actually have three. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and then Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. So if you want to go ahead and put your finger in all three or put a, a, a piece of paper, Miss Darlene was back there tearing up the bulletin uh, before service, and I said, what, did you get mad at it? And she said, no, I just saw that I got all these scriptures to turn to, so I, I'm marking it. So she's being a good student and getting ready already, to uh, getting ready ahead of time to to uh, read. And so if you want to go ahead and be turning to those passages, if you haven't already, you can do so. But we're going to be uh, a little while before we get to the passages because I need to do a number of uh, things to introduce where we're going. We're going to start in a new mini-series as we have been from the beginning of this year working through uh, the subject of discipleship, studying what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we've been through several twists and turns. We started uh, started out by defining what it means to be a disciple, and then we looked at the Beatitudes uh, from Matthew chapter 5, and then we looked at the kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13. And so we've been uh, progressing through these different ways of understanding discipleship. But if you remember back to the beginning of the year, as I was working through the different definitions that the Bible has for discipleship, one of the biblical terms or words that we looked at was the word didache, the Greek word didache, which in our English translations, we either translate as teaching or as doctrine. But uh, as I'd said at the time, it is not just that doctrine in the Bible is not just a a set of facts or a set of statements or a set of beliefs that we hold to, but rather it is a way of life. And I said at the time that there were three specific ways that the Bible teaches us about doctrine. One is a way of obedience, that there is a way of living as a Christian in this world. Second, I said that there is a way of truth, that there are things that you should believe about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about all these different things. And then the last thing I said was that there is a way of teaching, that we join together as a body of believers to sit under preaching, to to grow in our faith, and to be built up as believers. And so uh, we have that way of of doctrine, that way of life, communicated to us in several ways. First of all, we have the life of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. And so we can read about the way that Jesus lived and the way he taught his disciples, and we can know how we should live. We also have it written down in the letters of the apostles, the rest of the New Testament. And so we can read these letters that the apostles wrote to the churches in the early days of the church, and we can see how we're to live as Christians and what we're to believe. But yet, even though we have 
the Gospels, even though we have the letters to the Apostles, even though we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, even with all of that, and as the Apostles were teaching and they were writing these things down, false doctrines, false teaching began to creep into the church. Even during the ministries of Peter and Paul and John, men would sneak into the churches that they had just established, literally right after they left, men would come in and begin to teach things that were contrary to Scripture, uh, what we would now call heresy. In his letters, Paul combated the Judaizers, which were a group of Jews who claimed that Gentiles must accept Jesus, yes, but they must also keep the Levitical laws in order to be saved. John would write to combat the, the false teachings of Gnosticism, which uh, were, was a belief that everything that is material is evil and everything that is spiritual is good. And therefore, because Jesus was the Son of God, he could not have been born in the flesh. He, he, see, he just appeared to be human form, but he wasn't actually born in the flesh. But even after the death of the apostles, heresies continued to crop up. Marcion, for example, taught that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus were two separate gods and they were at war with each other. Modern in modern times, you have preachers that say that we should unhitch from the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is too cruel and difficult. And that's just Marcionism restated. Arius taught that Jesus was not fully God, but was the first created being. And in modern times, you have Christian cults that teach very similar things to that. Sibelius taught that Jesus was nothing more than a mask that God put on and, and that, he, that God just took on different modes or forms depending on how he wanted to interact with humanity. So against these false teachings, the early church began to develop creeds or statements of faith that clearly defined what right belief is. One of the oldest creeds that we have is what is known today as the Apostles' Creed. And this creed dates back to the early 2nd century. It was actually originally used in baptismal practices. And you'll notice when I do a baptism, I do the, the different elements of the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, it originally developed as questions that would be asked of the person that was going through the baptismal rite. And the Apostles' Creed, if you'll notice, is organized into three sections that uh, revolve around the three persons of the Trinity. It states in a short, concise way, in short, simple sentences, what every Christian should believe about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. And because it's so simple... I want to spend the next few months studying this creed as sort of a guide for what every Christian should believe. But before I do that, I need to address some potential concerns. You see, there are certain Baptist circles that are resistant to creeds and confessions. And they do that for good reason, because as Baptists, we are fully committed to the supremacy of Scripture. In other words, we believe that the Bible is the supreme authority for faith and practice. In fact, some Baptists will use the statement, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. 
And all that is fine and well and good, and I think that we should be fully committed to the supremacy of Scripture, but what are we to do with other denominations? I've never met a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Church of Christ who didn't believe the Bible. Every denomination believes that they are right because they believe that they understand the Bible correctly. If they didn't, they'd be going to Baptist churches. Every denomination believes that they are right. And beyond that, what are we to say of Christian cults like the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons? They, they too believe the Bible, albeit an altered version. Even further, what are we to say to Muslims and to Jews who also believe the Bible, though only segments of it? You see, it's not enough just to believe the Bible, but we have to also be able to say what we believe the Bible to teach. Now, while some Baptists have resist, resisted the use of creeds, others have recognized that they are indispensable. For example, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, It seems to me that protests against creeds are not against creeds, but against truth. For every man who believes anything must have a creed, whether he writes it down or not. B.H. Carroll, who founded Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, said, The modern cry, less creed and more liberty, is a degeneration from the vertebrate to the jellyfish and means less unity and less morality and more heresy. W.A. Criswell, who is the man who during his lifetime was called Mr. Baptist, said this. He said, You say, we do not have a creed. That is funny. It is ridiculous. It is inane. To Criswell's point, you need to understand that everyone has a creed. In fact, the word creed itself comes from the Latin word credo, which just means I believe. In fact, you'll notice that the way the Apostles' Creed begins is I believe in. That word, I believe, in the Latin is credo. And so when we say that we have a creed, we're just saying that we believe something. Everyone, whether you're Christian or not, has a set of beliefs to which they unswervingly hold. So as we begin our study in the Apostles' Creed, I'd like you to join me in reciting it. Now, as, I, I do, as we do that, I want to explain a couple of things. First of all, that I've come to learn that there are probably half of us in this room who grew up in another denomination, some Methodist, some Presbyterian, some in other denominations, and you probably grew up saying the Apostles' Creed. I grew up Baptist, and I didn't grow up saying it until I was a teenager and I started dating Leah. And Leah went to Presbyterian Church, and, and I would uh, occasionally visit there, and they, they said it every Sunday. And so I, I grew to love it because of that. But uh, you'll notice that there are a few differences with probably the way that you grew up saying it. If you grew up Methodist, you didn't say he descended into the grave or descended into hell. If you, uh, and I've changed a few words here just to avoid some confusion. So uh, when we say it, if you end up saying it the way that you learned it, that's fine. Uh, if, you, if you say it somehow differently, nobody's going to judge you. But let's say it together. If you have noticed, it's in the bulletin. If you'll take the bulletin in the, in the uh, center fold of the bulletin, we will uh, read that together and recite the Apostles' Creed. 
Now, the reason I'm doing this, and we're going to continue to do this throughout this sermon series, I'm doing this because it is a great statement that you can hold on to as a means of stating clearly what you believe. Uh, Leah and I were talking about this uh, the other night, and I was telling her what I was going to be preaching on. And one of the points she made that I thought was a really good point is, you know, she said, I've always thought that if I were to be persecuted, if I were to be asked to recant my faith, that one of the things that I would cite that I could go to quickly because I said it all throughout my life uh, growing up as a Presbyterian, I could I could say I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and go through that and state my faith clearly. And so it is a good thing to hold to as a clear statement of our faith. And so let's read it together, and we'll hopefully, over the course of the next few months, memorize this so that you can uh, clearly state your faith. Uh, Let's begin at uh, I believe. Ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven And sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Life as a disciple of Jesus Christ begins with confession. It begins with a statement of belief. As a helpless father pled with Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. As Peter would proudly state in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As Thomas would profess in John chapter 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, everyone who professes me before men, him will I profess before my Father who is in heaven. The willingness to say what you believe to other people is a marker of faith. It is an evidence that you trust God. So in the time we have left, I'd like to consider what the Bible says we are to confess and believe in order to be saved. First, let's consider Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Turn with me there as we consider this first example of a confession. Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says, And without faith it is impossible impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So the writer of Hebrews states here that there is one thing that is required to please God. There is one thing and one thing only that can make you right with God. And that is faith. In fact, he states it in the negative. He says, without faith, it is impossible 
to please God. Understand that there is no amount of good works, if they are done without faith, that will please God. There is no amount of sacrifice, no amount of appeasement, no amount of ritual that will please God. Only faith can please God. But this faith is not just wishful wishful thinking and it's not just positive thoughts or as the teenagers like to do today, it's not just manifesting, it's not just believing for the sake of belief. The writer goes on to say that for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Now, unfortunately, my translation doesn't in my mind get that word exist right. In fact, the King James Version, I think, gets it more right than my English Standard Version. The word, the Greek word that is used for exist there is the word emi, which means I am. In the King James, it says, if anyone should believe in God, uh, uh, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is. So that gets closer to the idea of what the writer of Hebrews is getting across. So what the writer is saying is not that in order to please God, you just must believe that he exists. Rather, the word I am harkens back to the covenant name of the God of Israel. Remember in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses meets with God at the burning bush, he asks God for his name. And how does God respond? You know, I am that I am. It is not enough just to believe in some positive force in the universe. It's not enough to believe in karma. It's not enough just to believe in the big man upstairs. It's not enough to believe in Allah or Shiva or any other God that you might choose. You must place your faith in the God of Israel, the sovereign God of all creation who works all things together for our good and for His glory. Second, Flip with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. It says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is a beautiful, simple creed. That Paul gives us here. In order to be saved, he says that one must confess Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. Now, there in this statement, there are two actions and two objects that I want you to notice about this creed. First, Paul says that we must confess with our mouth. Now, the word there for confess is homologia, which means to say the same. In other words, Jesus has said that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And when we confess our faith in him, basically what we are doing is we are saying the same thing that he said. We are in full agreement with him. He says he is Lord and we agree. But Paul adds this all important phrase to the word confess. He says, confess with what? Your mouth, right? So it's not enough to mumble agreement under your breath or to write it on a note and stick it under your pillow or place it in a time capsule to be opened after you die or to just believe it silently in your heart. 
No, none of those things is true confession. Confession is made with the mouth to other people. And notice the object of that confession. We are to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, what is pictured here, and it is a real picture, it is not a metaphor or anything. What is pictured here is that we are subjects of a king. And the king stands before us, and you can imagine it just like uh, all those those period piece movies that you like to watch where everybody's dressed up in gowns and and, uh, acting out in medieval fashion. There's the king standing in his court and you come in to greet the king and you walk down to the front of the, the, the chamber and you kneel before the king and you take the king's hand and you kiss his ring and you pledge allegiance, you pledge fealty to that king. When we confess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, we are doing that exact thing. We are saying that God has made Jesus to be Lord of heaven and earth. And because of that, we submit fully and uh, ably and uh, in full agreement with him that he is the king and that we should serve him. Second, Paul says that we believe in our heart. Now, I love that Paul makes a distinction between confession and belief, because I think we all know of people who can say all the right things about Jesus, but they really don't believe. It's entirely possible that you could have just said all the words, just read it along with us, said all the words of the Apostles' Creed, but had an unbelieving heart. So confession is not all that there is to true and saving faith. You must also believe it in your heart. You must trust that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and that that means something for you too. It means that you'll rise again from the dead too. So we must, as Paul says, confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We must do that publicly in front of other people. But we must also believe it in our hearts that he rose from the dead and as a result, We will too. So lastly, flip with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Paul writes this. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So here Paul says that everyone who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ has been united into one spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit calls every believer to faith in Jesus Christ. It is because of the Holy Spirit that you even have faith. It is because of the Holy Spirit that you understand It is because of the Holy Spirit that we all agree in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So everyone who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ must be led by the Holy Spirit. We believe that he gives us the power of Christ to withstand the attacks of Satan. 
We believe that he goes before us as we take the gospel into this world. And so, friend, do you believe? Have you come to understand that the God of Israel is the one true God? Do you trust that Jesus Christ is his only son who is the Lord of Lords and who has risen from the dead? Do you sense the Holy Spirit calling you to trust in him? Won't you confess that faith in the Lord today and be saved? Brothers and sisters, we are called to make a good confession before men. This means that we first know what we believe and why we believe it. And that in itself is justification enough for studying a creed that states that faith plainly. But it's not just enough to know it. It's not just enough to study it. We are called to proclaim it. We are called to say it forth, to agree with Jesus and to tell others about who he is. So may we leave this place and confess our faith before men. Let's pray.